0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you
1: did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.
2: Fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson.
0: It is Tuesday, October 5th. 2021 this is the guy benson show i'm your host guy benson if you don't know me if you're new to the program welcome we are just delighted to have you here i'm the political editor at townhall.com a fox news contributor in fact i'll be on special report tonight on the panel in the 6 p.m eastern time hour so looking forward to that i'm also host of this fine daily radio show every weekday monday through friday 3 to 6 p.m eastern time and available around the clock for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your free podcast. We appreciate however you listen, whenever you listen. Please just listen. Tell your friends we are growing thanks to you. On today's show, Shannon Bream is going to be here coming up later on in the hour. She is filling in for Brett Bayer tonight, so I'll be joining her on the air on the TV side as well. The Supreme Court has kicked off another New season, if you will. They're back in person after all the COVID-19 remote oral arguments over the last 18, 19 months. And the court is tackling some very significant issues on the docket this term. Abortion, religious liberty, guns. It will be action-packed. And we will have Shannon preview that for us because she is an expert and a longtime court watcher. In our next hour, U.S. Senator Mike Braun, Republican of Indiana, is going to be here. He got into it a bit with the education secretary from the Biden administration during testimony this week. And the education secretary has taken some shots at Senator Braun. We will get Braun's response here on the air. Plus, he's a fiscal hawk, always has been, even during the Trump administration. What does he think of reconciliation and this huge amount of spending that Democrats are talking about? We will put that question to him as well. In our final hour, Jeff Passon of ESPN previewing the baseball playoffs, which begin tonight. Yankees, Red Sox up in Boston, some other really compelling matchups upcoming as well. He is their MLB insider at ESPN, and Jeff is always a good sport. We look forward to chatting with him. Also, Susan Lee, our colleague over at Fox Business Network, she's been following all this turmoil at Facebook With the whistleblower, with the huge outage yesterday, with all the Facebook platforms going down for hours on end, what the hell happened? Susan Lee will be here to break that all down. That is also in our final hour, the happy hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern time on today's show. Fox News alert as we get going today. Let's bring you statistics. Case count in the United States, coronavirus confirmed tests. These are positive tests. Forty three point eight million we always tell you the real number is much higher than that. The good news is, after a big spike down in the south, overall cases in the United States from the Delta wave are down 24 percent, double digits, compared to two weeks ago. Hospitalizations down 20 percent compared to two weeks ago, although we are starting to see some concerns about some northern states where the Delta wave might be starting to take effect. That is something that we do want to keep an eye on. It is a cause for some concern, but not too much alarm yet. It's something that we are monitoring. The death toll is up. Now, 703,362 Americans have died of or with COVID. That is also, while it's an increase overall to the death toll, the rate of increase has come down. That lagging indicator of deaths now down 12% compared to two weeks ago, so we are moving in a better direction for now, and we are thankful for that. Well, the Dow was down big yesterday. Today, it is up big, currently ahead in the green, 455 points, Dow trading at 34,459 at the moment, so on track for a pretty significant day up in New York. We will see if anything changes over the next 50 minutes ahead of the closing bell. I would like to begin the show today with some hardcore politics, very D.C. Yes, I want to talk about the fight over the debt limit, which I know sounds very exciting, except here's the thing. It matters. It's a significant policy. It's an interesting fight right now between the Democrats and the Republicans with the Democrats really going hard after the GOP. The president did it yesterday, Chuck Schumer again today. But here's what I want you to understand. I want you to understand what is actually going on here, what the Democrats are saying versus what the reality is. And I want to illustrate just how full of it Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer are on this issue as they assail and lambaste the Republican Party for doing something that, Spoiler alert, we will demonstrate both of those exact same gentlemen who are all worked up now, Biden and Schumer, that they themselves have done. Surprise, surprise. Hypocrisy in Washington, D.C. Are you amazed? I am not. Knock me over with a feather. Right. So here's where I want to begin as we tackle this particular issue. I want to talk through some of the attacks from President Biden. He gave this speech yesterday. We played some snippets of it yesterday, but just a reminder of the tone and the content of what Biden was saying. Let's start with cut one. He wants us to all know he's very, very mad, and it's the Republicans' fault.
3: Not only are Republicans refusing to do their job, they're threatening to use the power, their power, to prevent us from doing our job. Saving the economy from a catastrophic event. I think, quite frankly, it's hypocritical, dangerous and disgraceful. Their obstruction and irresponsibility knows the absolutely no bounds.
0: Uh-huh. So hypocritical, dangerous, disgraceful. They're preventing us from doing our job to avoid catastrophe. So he begged the Republicans in cut Two, just get out of our way and let us do the thing.
3: We're just asking them not to use procedural tricks to block us from doing the job that they won't do. (coughs) Meteor is is headed to crash into our economy. Democrats are willing to do all the work stopping it. Republicans just have to let us do our job. Just get out of the way.
0: And he said Republicans, as we played you the clip yesterday, are playing Russian roulette with the economy. Now, here's the thing. If you knew nothing... At all, no context, no information. You might say, well, gosh, it sounds like the Republicans are doing something really terrible here. Why? Just for, for political games and political advantage, this is irresponsible. For months, dating back to July, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, has made it very clear over and over again that his members were not going to go along with raising the debt ceiling. They were going to oppose it with everything that they could, they could muster in terms of their tools because, number one, Democrats are trying to spend trillions of dollars in a totally unaffordable, irresponsible spending binge that will also raise taxes, harm the economy, and plunge us deeper into debt, even though they say it's all paid for. That's nonsense. It is the height of irresponsibility, what the Democrats are trying to do. They don't have a big governing majority or mandate, but they recognize that they might lose at least one of their majorities next year. So they want to cram down as much spending as they possibly can, hiking taxes up as well in the process. And Republicans have been totally cut out of the process. They're not talking with them. They're not negotiating with them. This is all an internal discussion among the Democratic Party. And what McConnell has been saying is like, okay, if you want to move forward with this insane agenda – we are not going to make your job any easier on things like the debt ceiling. Now, it's also important to note that the Democrats don't need the Republicans to raise the debt ceiling. This is why Biden and the quotes I just played to you just so ridiculous. They can use the Democrats can use simple majorities to raise the debt ceiling on their own without a single Republican vote. Nancy Pelosi just needs a simple majority in the House. She's got that. And Chuck Schumer can use this reconciliation process on a budget issue to prioritize raising the debt ceiling. And they can use reconciliation to do it again with zero out of the 50 Republican votes in the Senate. They can do it on their own. They have the power and authority to do it. They have the tools to do it. They have chosen not to do it. McConnell very consistently has said this July, August, September, October, guys, this is our position. We're not moving off of it. If you want to raise the debt ceiling while you're doing all this crazy additional spending, which we oppose, we oppose all of it. You're doing it without us. You're acting like you have 60 votes. You have 50. Then good luck with the debt ceiling. Do it on your own. You can do it. We're just not going to help. And that is being treated like it's like legislative arson. By the Democrats, even though I will point out Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, the moderates within the Republican conference, they are on board with this strategy. Romney made that clear and affirmed that today, saying, yeah, we are we are hanging together. We are holding together on this. Democrats can raise the debt ceiling on their own and we're going to force them to do that. So it's not some wild-eyed, insane thing. If Romney and Collins are on board, you can't really blame it all on Mitch McConnell or some right-wing scheme. It's not. This is how politics works. This is how legislating works. The chances of a national default crashing the economy are zero because the Democrats who are saying it's so essential can do it on their own without the Republicans' help. The problem is for them, for the Democrats— It's complicated. It's convoluted. They have enough problems right now that they're facing, right, on the infrastructure bill, on the reconciliation spending. They are fighting amongst themselves, and if you throw the debt ceiling into it, it becomes another layer of complication. Do you put that into the reconciliation bill? What does that mean for the reconciliation bill? Schumer doesn't want to deal with those headaches, so he's insisting that Republicans, who he's treating like they don't even exist— On all these other policies, he's telling the Republicans they have to come in and save the Democrats from themselves and be responsible adults and clear the decks and make it easier for the Democrats to then force through trillions of dollars of new spending. Without a single Republican vote and the Republicans are saying, you know what, we might be suckers and fools from time to time, but not on this. It's so obvious what the Democrats are trying, and it's just politics 101. It would be, I would say, political malpractice for the Republicans just to go along with what Schumer wants, given all of this context. Now, there's another element of this that I already hinted at. Which is Joe Biden, you know, he's all angry. This is catastrophe, hypocritical, dangerous, disgraceful Russian roulette. How can these Republicans do this? Well, Mitch McConnell has responded, and he opened his speech on the Senate floor with an interesting quote from an interesting source. We've been down this path before with Senator McConnell going into the archives and quoting this source. You might guess who it is. Let's listen together to Cut 25. Mitch McConnell has receipts.
3: I want to begin today with a quotation. Quote, because this massive accumulation of debt was predicted, because it was foreseeable, because it was unnecessary, because it was the result of willful and reckless disregard for the warnings that were given and for the fundamentals of economic management, I'm voting against the debt limit increase. Now, Madam President, that was then-Senator Joe Biden. In March of 2006, right before every single Democratic senator voted against raising the debt limit and made a unified Republican government do it alone.
0: Surprise, surprise. With Donald Trump, there was always a tweet, they used to say. With Joe Biden, there's always a speech. In 2006, Senator Joe Biden vociferously railed against raising the debt ceiling because it was so fiscally irresponsible all of the debt i mean it wasn't even close to what we're looking at today that was joe biden back then republicans controlled all of washington just like the democrats do now republicans had the presidency the senate and the house and every single senate democrat voted against raising the debt ceiling and forced the Republicans to do it on their own back in 2006. And Joe Biden was an enthusiastic participant in that strategy. And he said so. And he explained why. He made a similar speech in 2004 under very similar circumstances. Chuck Schumer was one of the unified Senate Democrats, all of them in 06, who voted against raising the debt ceiling. In fact, Chuck Schumer was the DSCC chairman that cycle, the 2006 election cycle. He used Republicans voting in favor of raising the debt ceiling in attack ads against them. So they were very happy to play games with the debt ceiling for their own political benefit when the roles were reversed. But now they, oh, just on principle, they, they cannot believe. They are shocked and appalled. And aghast that the Republicans would do exactly the thing that Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer themselves have personally done. It's amazing. And they get up there with all these histrionics and their scowls like they don't remember their own track record on this. Maybe Joe's forgotten. But Cocaine Mitch has not. And he read several quotes on the Senate floor making the point. Oh, I'm sure it's different. It's always different with Democrats. Democrats. It's always different with Democrats, except it just isn't. There's one more point I want to make about this, and it's an important one, and I'll make it as soon as we come back. It's The Guy Benson Show.
2: You're listening to Guy Benson. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Guy Benson, back here on the Guy Benson Show. So there's his headline. Schumer, sick of Mitch, tries to force Republicans' hands with this cloture vote that's expected tomorrow. Jake Sherman, a reporter on the Hill, says Schumer is sick of McConnell and trying to break him. He believes McConnell's a phony who comes up with a BS standard for every situation when it fits his political needs. And this is what we would call hardcore projection. Ladies and gentlemen. Let me explain as I wrap up this scintillating discussion about the debt ceiling. I think back to 2016, Justice Scalia died in an election year. Mitch McConnell, under immense pressure, said, nope, we are not going to allow Barack Obama to fill that seat. The Democrats went crazy. They're still angry about it. They scream about Merrick Garland, the nominee who never got a hearing. Totally ignoring all the context that led up to that, namely the standards set by Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer, there they are again, God bless him, who had said previously during Republican presidencies, George H.W. Bush for Biden, George W. Bush for Schumer, if there's a vacancy in an election year leading up to an election from a Republican president with a Supreme Court opening, we're not going to seat a justice. That was their standard. Biden and Schumer, on the record, they set it. Mitch McConnell said, "Okay, we see your standard and we're going to use your standard in a way that you don't like. But it's your standard that we're going to force you to live by. And they have squealed like stuck pigs. Same thing here on the debt ceiling. Biden and Schumer losing their minds about the Republicans doing what Democrats and they personally have done on the exact issue of the debt ceiling back in 06. They hate Mitch McConnell, not because of his B.S. standards, but because he holds them to their own BS standards.
2: Yeah. GuyBensonShow.com.
0: We're back, and we're glad that you are with us on this Tuesday. It's the Guy Benson Show. And joining us now is our colleague and friend, the great Shannon Bream, although she's called the evil Shannon Bream every night by Greg Gutfeld before he tosses to her for Fox News at night, which she anchors from midnight to 1 a.m. every single weeknight here at Fox News. She's also in for Brett Bayer this evening on special reports, so double duty for her. I'll be on the panel this evening, which will be fun. She also is host of the hit podcast, Live in the Bream. She has a best-selling book out called The Women of the Bible Speak. She is an extremely, extremely busy woman, and on top of all of it, she is chief legal correspondent here at Fox News, and it's a big week on that front as well. Hello, Shannon. Welcome back to the show.
5: Thanks for having me, Guy. Always a treat to be with you. I'm glad we will have multiple meetings today.
0: We will, and I think I'm joining you tomorrow night on The Midnight Show, and perhaps again on Thursday. So we're going to be seeing or at least hearing a lot of each other, so I hope that's okay. Uh, Let me start with the Supreme Court, and a pretty significant development this week. The court is now back in session, a new term in person, although I saw one headline that said one justice was missing from the courtroom and one justice was masked Who were those two? Well,
5: Justice Kavanaugh was not there. He participated remotely. He tested positive for COVID last week. They do a ton of routine right. testing, as many workplaces do, and as you would expect with the justices, he's fully vaccinated. And so far, we're told no symptoms, but in an abundance of caution, he is uh, participating this week from home. Justice Sotomayor is the one who was wearing a mask. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know about her personal decision, but she's been very open with the fact that she's diabetic. And so she's got an, uh, an additional health uh, situation that she probably is uh, more acutely aware and careful, um, maybe than some others. And so I'm guessing that's what it was for her, but I don't know.
0: I'd imagine that would at least make sense. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people focusing on this term. Of course, every Supreme Court term is significant. They rule on extremely weighty and consequential issues. Often those decisions reverberate throughout society sometimes for years, if not decades. This term seems to be setting up to be a real barn burner because some of the most significant hot-button issues in our politics and in our culture are front and center, religious liberty, gun rights, and abortion. If you would just maybe preview for us some of these cases coming before the court on those fronts in particular, and if you think I'm missing a big one, feel free to interject, but on religious liberty, then guns, then abortion, What is at stake this term before the high court?
5: Okay, I'll give you some cliff notes. On religious liberty, a couple cases we're watching. One involves the use of state money in Maine, a tuition program that's available to students there and parents in the K-12 through scenario. This is not higher ed. But whether or not some of that money can be used at religious schools, the goal is to help parents out who live in rural areas or places where there are not a lot of school options so that they can find a good fit for their kids. So there's been an argument that none of that money should go to a parochial Christian or Catholic school. That's going to be one to watch. And it's big for school vouchers and religious liberty. Another religious liberty case is a guy who is on death row. He is fighting for the right for his pastor to be there as he is executed to be able to lay hands on him and to pray over him. So it'll be interesting to see if he's allowed to have that person in the chamber with him when that happens. Um, Guns, you mentioned. New York, uh, if you want to carry in public, have a special permit to carry a gun in public that you legally own, it's very tough to get a permit if you know anything about that situation. A couple of the plaintiffs are people who had applied based on self-defense, and they were told it didn't rise to the, quote, special um, standard that they needed to reach. The argument there is, um, listen, um, critics of of the law say, the guns shouldn't be, those permits shouldn't be just for former law enforcement or for high-profile celebrities who make an argument to have them. So we'll see about that. Now, the biggie, of course, is abortion. Mississippi's got a law that basically outlaws most abortions after 15 weeks. That's the Dobbs case. It'll be argued September, or December 1st. And all eyes are on this one. Um, there have been many critics of the underpinnings of the legal reasoning in Roe v. Wade. Even Justice Ginsburg had talked about how she thought Roe wasn't specific decided in the best framework. It left it open to attack. So you know a number of these states have specifically passed laws to make a direct run at Roe, and that certainly looks like what Mississippi is arguing.
0: And so that's a 15-week ban with some exceptions. That's my understanding, which is Less restrictive than the Texas law, which was allowed to stand through what's called the shadow docket. What does that term exactly mean? Because I know Justice Alito was under some fire for defending the shadow docket in a recent speech. He also says a lot of the attacks on the Supreme Court recently are attempts at an intimidation. Justice Sotomayor also making some comments on abortion that got some attention from folks where he was she was urging uh, some law students saying, I can't change the law in Texas, but you can. Some people said that was inappropriate. So a few little mini tempests around a huge issue already ahead of that Mississippi case, Shannon.
5: Yeah, and so many of the, of the justices have been speaking publicly and making points that have gotten a lot of headlines. Justice Breyer has pushed back against this idea about talking about packing the court. Justice Barrett, a few days ago, was uh, quoted in a speech saying she wants to dispel the notion that the court is made up of political hacks, um, and yes, Justice uh, Sotomayor was talking to these uh, law students saying, you know, you're going to have times when you're disappointed. Um, I've written some fiery dissents. Go check them out. And she referenced the Texas case. Now, here's what happened. It came before them for a vote about whether or not it should be blocked or upheld while it's the case itself about it is playing out on the merits. So the Supreme Court could have gotten involved. They said we are not ruling on the merits. There are procedural issues here that we feel at this point mean we can't get involved. The Texas six-week ban. So they haven't ruled on the merits, but, um, you know, you're right. Justice Sotomayor was out there telling the students, if you don't like it, I can't change it. You've got to go do this legislatively. And some people thought you shouldn't be talking about a case that's before the court. It seemed rather benign, but we know where she stands on it. Now, Justice Alito was talking about this so-called shadow docket. He says, listen, this should be called more properly the emergency docket. They've been doing this forever. When something comes in on an emergency basis, and we saw this a ton during the heat of the COVID battles over closing churches and... And schools and all kinds of things, um, it goes to a particular justice strictly based on geography. The, the justices are assigned different geographic regions they oversee. So when one of those emergency requests comes in, it's not going to be fully vetted and heard and argued. That justice can decide alone or send it to the court. And so there have been a lot of those that have been sent to the full court, and they go for a vote. That's what happened with the Texas six-week abortion ban. So it's still playing out the case on the merits below, but in the meantime, the, the court voted uh, 5-4 the that they're not going to get involved in that case for now. And so it's a procedural issue, but a lot of people say that docket where they vote on something without hearing the case, briefing, or arguments can equate to a vote um, that actually stops the law on its tracks or allows it to proceed, and that's just the way these emergency procedures work.
0: Meanwhile, many, many people are watching that abortion case in Mississippi, and a reminder, if Roe versus Wade were altered or curbed or even overturned completely— That would not make all abortion illegal in the country. It would leave it then up to the states on a state-by-state basis to decide what their abortion policy looks like from extremely permissive, some of the most permissive in the entire world, to more restrictive – Depending on the state legislature, the governor, et cetera, that is what would happen. I think that is a misconception as we discuss Roe versus Wade, and I think that shows up sometimes in the polling. We'll see what the justices do in a Supreme Court that is closely divided 5-4 to or 6-3 to in favor of conservatives, depending on the issue. Shannon Bream watching all of it in her capacity as chief legal correspondent at Fox News. She's in for Brett Baier tonight. I'll join that panel and, of course, her midnight show every night, Fox News at Night on FNC. Shannon, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, guys. See you tonight. Sounds good. In the meantime, here on The Guy Benson Show, I want to go to Howell, Michigan, where President Biden is now making some remarks. It looks like he might be taking questions. He is trying to make a sales pitch for the various spending bills that Democrats are right now struggling to get through Congress. I feel like he needs to be selling members of Congress, not so much the American people, but he's doing an event in an attempt to rally support for all of this spending, including a bipartisan bill and a mammoth fully partisan bill. Let's listen live to the president in Michigan right now. There's
3: only two industrial nations that are lower than us. All those investments that fuel the strong economy, we've, uh, we've taken our foot off the gas. We've taken we just, I don't know what's happened. The world has taken notice, by the way, including our adversaries. And now they're closing the gap in a big way so it's essential that we regain our momentum that we've lost and work our you know the work of our time it seems to me those of us who hold public office is to prepare ourselves to be more competitive and to win the fast changing 21st century in the global economy things are changing cr- incredibly quickly that's why i propose two critical pieces of legislation being debated back in washington right now the first a bill to invest in our physical infrastructure. And the second is a bill to invest in our human infrastructure. I'll talk about both these bills in just a moment. But first, I want to set one thing straight. These bills are not about left versus right or moderate (laughs) versus progressive or anything that pits Americans against one another. These bills are about competitiveness versus complacency. They're about opportunity versus decay. They're about leading the world or continue to let the world pass us by, which is literally happening to support these investments is to create a rising America. America is moving to oppose. These investments is to be complicit in America's decline uh, to support these bills. Okay, to so per- let me
0: uh, jump in here as the president is making his case through, I think some very faulty arguments and propaganda. If you don't support, trillions of dollars in new government spending on quote-unquote human infrastructure which is a made-up thing then you are complicit in the decline of america now forgive me i don't find that very compelling from a dude who just left americans behind in afghanistan after promising not to do that i'm not sure this man is terribly credible on the issue of american decline he knows a thing or two about american decline But not the way he's presenting it here. Opposing reckless, ridiculous spending is not complicity in American decline. In my view, it is trying to prevent and forestall American decline because we can't afford it and it is reckless. Now, he talked a lot there and we only heard him for about a minute. He talked about competitiveness and being competitive in the global economy. How many times did he say that two or three times? In order to pay for part of the multi-trillion dollar spending bid that he's talking about. So it's not about right versus left or moderate versus progressive. Actually, it is. Every single Republican in Washington is against this for good reason. Independents are turning against these policies in polling for good reason. But if he wants us to examine the question of competitiveness, his tax increases on small businesses And larger businesses would make us less competitive in the world. If Biden got his way, if Joe Biden's tax and spend policies get through Congress and the Democrats find a way to take that leap together. The corporate tax rate in the United States would be one of the highest in the industrialized world, above average, certainly, and higher even than China's. He wants us to be competitive. With the world, he wants us to be competitive with China, but he wants to raise the cost of doing business in this country for corporations higher than China's. And, of course, those tax increases on businesses get passed down to workers and to customers. That's the way it works. I know the White House was mad about that, saying, oh, that's offensive to say it. It's basic economics. And by raising the top income tax for individuals, a lot We were talking about this the other day with Americans for Tax Reform and Grover Norquist, their president. He was saying a lot of small businesses file as individuals at that top rate. So they get hammered with a big tax increase. We've seen our economic growth and recovery. It has been lethargic. It is falling short of expectations. We've also seen the bite and the pain of inflation. And this president wants us to spend trillions of additional new dollars on top of all the money we're already spending and on top of the tens of trillions of dollars we already have coming down the pike that are not paid for. He wants to add to the mountain by trillions in the middle of an inflation problem. And while we are sucking wind and struggling to bounce back from covid and that recession to the just red hot economy before covid. In 2019, he wants to raise taxes on businesses and job creators and the American people, including a lot of middle and working class people. Despite his promise, we know some of the pay-fors will absolutely hit people in the middle and working classes. And he says that's all in the name of competitiveness. That's not how this works. This makes us less competitive. In order to have a more sprawling Federal government that pays and spends a huge amount of money that we already don't have, financed in part by increases in tax rates. And he has the gall to pretend that objecting to this, like members of his own party are doing, by the way, which is the problem that he's got, is complicit in decline, American decline. That's one way to frame it, sir. It is not true. It is not persuasive, and it's really weak stuff from a president who increasingly seems to be feeding us a diet of weak sauce. Weakness all over the place from this president, Joe Biden. So he's uh, yammering on in Michigan. We'll keep an eye on that. In the meantime, we will step aside and break. It's the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to Guy Benson. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. I'm sure you'll be flabbergasted to learn that the CDC had a big screw-up today. I mean, they're just the gang that can't shoot straight over and over again. They trip over their own feet. It's just a mess over there. And it's a terrible time for them to screw up an error this badly, this often in the middle of a pandemic where Americans are scared and frustrated, and exhausted, and are losing confidence in institutions like the CDC. So here's the latest one. I saw a few headlines earlier today that the CDC was recommending again this year a virtual Thanksgiving. Virtual Thanksgiving in 2021. And I just about hit the ceiling. And some of the details were, oh, you might be able to take your mask off if you're eating outside. I'm like, what are we doing here? Like, do you want to absolutely convince everyone that the vaccines don't work and make no difference and we'll just be in this holding pattern forever? What are you doing, CDC? Then it turned out, because my thought was, it's like the vaccines haven't happened. It's like we're back a year ago and nothing has changed. It was just nuts. And then came the correction. They had posted the wrong guidance, they said, due to, quote, a mishap. And I guess what happened was they accidentally republished last year's guidance as this year's guidance. Oops. Said, so don't worry, we'll have new guidance out shortly on Thanksgiving. I'm, I will pay very close attention. I'm sure you all will, too. I I need Rochelle Walensky to tell me how to celebrate the holidays as a fully vaccinated person with natural immunity. No, thank you. But what a mishap. They posted the wrong year's info last year's stuff for this year, virtual Thanksgiving. This on the heels of Dr. Fauci equivocating on whether we can hang out with friends and family for Christmas and then backtracking on that. How often do they reverse themselves and backtrack? It's a mess. Another hour coming up on The Guy Benson Show.
2: Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson
0: Show. A brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show from the Tony Snow Radio Studio in Washington, D.C. at Fox News, D.C. Bureau. I'm Guy Benson. Happy to have you here. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. Catch me on Special Report tonight, Fox News Channel in the 6 p.m. hour. GuyBensonShow.com is our website here. The podcast is free every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour The Dow closes up 311 points off session highs, but still a good day. The Dow ending at 34,314 on this Tuesday. Well, President Biden is still speaking in Michigan, trying to sell the American people on his big spending agenda. He said that these bills will breathe life into the American economy. And I think a lot of critics would argue, no, they would suck the life out of the American economy, just the opposite in some important ways. Joining us now is U.S. Senator Mike Braun, Republican of Indiana. Senator, good to have you back. Good to be on, Guy. So the president is saying now that these trillions of dollars in proposed spending would add zero dollars to the deficit, and he said that to oppose these bills is to be, quote, complicit in American decline. I know that you are opposed to... Both of these bills, especially the reconciliation one, as is every single Republican in Congress. Your reaction to the president saying by voicing that opposition and having grave concerns about the content and substance of these bills, you are complicit in American decline, Senator.
6: So I think to understand where he comes from and members of the party, especially the progressive side, is they believe the federal government guy is – a growth business, and they're going to take uh, the advantage of the whole COVID crisis to kind of get where we were in terms of uh, elevating bureaucrats to determine who's an essential business, The $4 trillion that we did spend out of uncertainty, probably way more than we needed to, and then take that as a catalyst to transfer this economy that was working better. I was in it for 37 years uh, involved in my own business, running it for most of that time we had hit the sweet spot of economic growth and raising wages pre-COVID. And then this comes along, and they then try to use it to transform the country into a government-driven enterprise. And it'd be different if we've knocked anything out of the park in any of the stuff we've tried over decades. And this has really happened under Republican and Democratic stewardship from the Gulf Wars through the Obama years where government really became cachet, and now here it 's playing out in a doubling down motion of taking six point five trillion on top of the twenty eight trillion uh, roughly that we have eighteen trillion when I got here in two thousand and nineteen january it 's almost hard to imagine, and to put it in comparison the $800 to the eight hundred to nine hundred billion we spent to get through eight nine this is their politi- political entrepreneurship in an attempt to change the country, and it's going to do the opposite of what they intend, and hopefully the American public is not going to buy a sales job to replace what was working with more federal government.
0: Well, he says it costs nothing, right? This is their line, He's zero talking dollars. He's about
6: the fact that they're proposing tax Uh, Revenue that they know two-thirds of the proposals, including probably stepped-up basis and uh, estate tax exemption levels changing, that not all Democrats would be for that. So there will be some revenue generated, but it will be mostly shouldered by borrowed money, like almost everything has over the last decades, Republicans and Democrats, on the dance floor, but this is beyond the pale in terms of how much you're putting out there on top of all that debt we've accumulated with bad policies. So, hope, hopefully, this gives us the opportunity to get the reins back in 2022 to at least put a stop to it and then build the case for 2024. And then, what do we do with it? Do we undo some of the craziness? Do we actually start believing in budgets when we're in control? Do we take things back to regular order? Or or do we then get back into that unholy alliance that got us here mostly in the first place?
0: We will get back to the dead in a moment. First, though, I want to play some sound. This was an exchange that you had a few days ago with the education secretary, Miguel uh, Cardera, uh, Cardona, excuse me. and you asked him a question about parents and schools and the education of children, and it was sort of piggybacking off of something that had happened in the Virginia gubernatorial race, where the Democrat running in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, said that he doesn't think that parents should determine what's taught to their children in schools. The Republicans are really making hay out of that sort of Kinsleyan gaffe, as they call it in politics. You put a question to the Biden administration's secretary of education asking about a similar issue in Cut 23. Here's part of the exchange. Listen.
6: Do you think parents should be in charge of their child's education as the primary stakeholder.
0: I believe parents are important stakeholders, but I also believe educators have a role in determining uh, educational programming. So he wouldn't say that parents are the primary stakeholders in their own kids' education. And that clip went everywhere, Senator, because it's sort of feeding into this narrative that the Democrats are, frankly, fueling themselves – that they are more interested in the teachers' unions than in parents, and, and in some ways are almost hostile to the concerns of parents in favor of these deep-pocketed uh, political buddies of theirs in the teachers' unions. He was asked about this, the secretary was, in a subsequent interview, and Secretary Cardona said this about you in Cut 22. Listen.
4: Yeah, I think that was really more about getting uh, Twitter likes than it was about the issues
0: more about getting Twitter likes than the issue at hand. Your reaction to that, Senator?
6: He also said uh, in another comment that uh, the school board members, uh, not only he was back in Indiana visiting some, that they were more upset about their guy not winning the election. So he was, uh, I think, made two bad comments. And I did give him the opportunity to retract the one about the politicizing of true parent concerns. I served on a school board for 10 years. And we better make sure in Main Street America that our school boards are representing the main stakeholder, not school board associations that sometimes line up with the teachers' unions. And I know that because I served on one for 10 years. So uh, that clearly was either a Freudian slip or just outright honesty that they think, Parents should be secondary in the equation when we raise the kids and we pay the bills. And that's another federalizing uh, something that's been the state and local responsibility to where they're now weighing in at the federal level. And we can see where yep. they're coming from. Yep,
3: get the out there and get make
6: sure your local school boards are populated with people that reflect your community values.
0: Yeah, it's not a federal issue. It's not worthy of a federal investigation. Some of the uh, poor behavior and, and some of the threats that are occurring, which are indefensible. But it looks like this is the feds coming in in defense of teachers unions and school boards over parents. And I mean, this is this is a real fault line right now in our politics. Last question back here in Washington, Senator Braun. The debt ceiling fight is uh, underway. The words are flying back and forth. We did our opening monologue about it in our first hour with the Democrats like the president and Leader Schumer attacking you guys on the Republican side saying that you're playing Russian roulette with the economy. It's hypocritical. It's terrible. Now, they both had voted against raising the debt ceiling when they were in the minority and Republicans controlled – all of Washington back in 2006, they have completely changed their positions now that they are in the majority. What is your position on where the Republicans stand right now in the Senate? Are you all united behind McConnell's strategy of saying Democrats have the power to raise the debt ceiling on their own through reconciliation if they want to do it? They have to do it on their own. They're not going to get our help. Is your party going to make sure that that's the case? Is McConnell's threat here legit?
6: I think so. And uh, some would say, well, that's an epiphany after many years of both sides contributing to how we got to the $18 trillion in debt when I got here in January of 19. This is different. Never have we seen the doubling down on a spending spree, four times the magnitude of what they called our tax cut Impact, which was 1.5 billion over 10 years, 150 billion a year. This is roughly four times that, with not one Republican vote for the underlying policy or spending levels. We better hold firm, and in this case, I think we will. Because, and I hope it's also, guy, the beginning of a different point of view of how Republicans, as fiscal conservatives, we tout ourselves. Only three or four of us here vote against its policy that we like, if it doesn't have an honest pay for or an offset, that's that unholy alliance of rolling over for each other for defense versus domestic. And they've created the system to where that is only one third of our budget uh, anymore. About two thirds of it's on autopilot through mandatory spending. And again, that's been an equal opportunity endeavor between Republicans and Dems over time. I want to reform it along the lines of a guy like Dr. Tom Coburn, uh, who left the Senate in 2011. Uh, That's what we need more of here. And hopefully, when we do get the reins back, we don't continue down that pathway of borrowing from our kids and grandkids on policy that we like. Uh, Let's show some real backbone.
0: Yeah. Senator Coburn, the great senator from Oklahoma, you and he are some of the ones who have been consistent on this issue. Senator, I know you've got to run. Before you do, just very quickly, we saw yesterday President Biden sort of downplay That scene out in Arizona where your colleague, Senator Sinema, was chased into a bathroom with people heckling her and harassing her, filming her in the bathroom uh, for her opposition and and trying to lobby her uh, in favor of the president's agenda. Uh, Biden himself said yesterday that that's part of the process is the way that he referred to that is chasing lawmakers into bathrooms and filming them part of the process, in your view.
6: You know, that was very reminiscent of when I was running uh, close to the election in November of 18, when I remember Jeff Flake being uh, chased into an elevator and being yelled at and the display that they put on against... uh, Uh, Kavanaugh. So I don't see that kind of behavior by Republican policy activists. Uh, They're trying to standardize that into uh, kind of their modus operandi and and calling it standard operating procedure. Uh, That's some of the stuff we can't buy either guy. We need, need to know that for what it is disgraceful.
0: Yep, it is no matter who's doing it on either side. And the number of people almost defending what happened to cinema over the weekend is pretty appalling. We will get into more of that after this break, but for now, we will say goodbye to Senator Mike Braun of Indiana. Sir, we always appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
6: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: And some updates on cinema. It's it's just wild. I will get to that as soon as we come back. Short break. It's the Guy Benson Show.
6: Guy
2: Benson will be right back.
6: We need a Build Back Better plan right now.
4: We we knocked on doors. We need solutions to build that better plan.
1: We have the solutions that we need. We knocked on doors for you to get you elected, and just how we got you elected, we can get you out of office if you don't support what you promised us.
4: Joe Manchin had people on kayaks show up to his boat. Tl. Adam, Senator Sinema last night was chased into a restroom. Do you think that those tactics are crossing
3: a line? I don't think they're appropriate tactics, but it happens to everybody. Um, the, the only people it doesn't happen to are people who have Secret Service standing around them. Um, so uh, it's, it's it's part of the process.
0: Yeah, part of the process there, said President Biden, as we're back on the Guy Benson show, dismissing, shrugging off. What happened to Kyrsten Sinema, Arizona senator, a Democrat, whose vote he needs over the weekend? And when people have highlighted that he said, Oh, this happens to everyone, <laughs> unless you've got security like me, ha, <laughs> part of the process. When we have highlighted that portion of his answer, you've got a bunch of blue checkmark journals saying, Oh, well, he, he also said it's not appropriate. Right? That's the very bare minimum you can say, right? Checking the box before he got to, but. And they would get all over Donald Trump's case for this, right? They would want Trump to condemn someone, and Trump would say, yes, I condemn. But, and he would go on to the other things, and they would pretend like the first part didn't count. It didn't really matter. It was half-hearted. It wasn't heartfelt. A Democratic female senator was chased into a bathroom and filmed coming in and out of a bathroom stall by activists and agitators. And the president's overall reaction was, "Yeah, not appropriate, but part of the process. Well, that process has continued. Senator Cinema was flying back to Washington, and apparently someone confronted her on the airplane in flight. That's got to be fun, where you are stuck in a metal tube in the middle of the sky with someone who wants to badger you about something. And then she landed at the airport in Washington, D.C., and there was a welcoming party of activists who I guess are tracking her movements who showed up to swarm to her and harass her at the airport. So apparently the strategy of the hard left is to make this woman, really anyone who stands in the way of what they want – they do this all the time to Republicans – to make them miserable, to make them feel uncomfortable. It's only a matter of time before they show up at her house. This is what they do. Right? This is the playbook. They go to Supreme Court justices' houses. They go to senators' houses. They come up to people in restaurants when they're dining with their family to hound them out. They showed up at Tucker Carlson's house. Scared the living daylights out of his wife, who was home alone. It is absolutely disgusting. In a civil society where we have a rule of law and a democratic process, this is not how we do it. There is a time and a place to make your grievances known. For example, at a school board meeting right where you can show up and, yes, sometimes people will raise their voices. You should never threaten. You should never resort to violence or anything like that. But you've got a bunch of Democrats freaking out because parents are mad at school board meetings. And now the Biden DOJ has opened an investigation into this like it's a federal issue that a bunch of people are mad at teachers unions and school boards. They're trying to federalize that with the FBI intervening. Like that's out of bounds, except. Many of them are very muted or silent or even approving. Of these types of guerrilla tactics, even really disgusting ones, against, in this case, a Democratic senator who's standing in the way of progress, as they would say. There are now multiple people at CNN, Ana Navarro, Kirsten Powers, either half condemning it and then the immediate but, like it's sort of her fault, victim blaming, I think is what we normally call that. Kirsten Powers wrote a whole book about the power of grace, and now she is defending chasing a senator into the bathroom stall because she needs to vote a certain way. I saw someone uh, someone on the left, a blue check mark, lefty activist with a bunch of followers saying, well, if she wants to stop being harassed in bathrooms and film, maybe she should just vote for the bill. That is extortion. Just do what we demand and we'll leave you alone until next time. You cannot reward this type of behavior. It is absolutely appalling. And that slap on the wrist, tepidness from Biden yesterday, not good enough.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: Halfway through the show today, appreciate you being here. I want to talk about immigration and the border crisis that continues under this president and this administration. And you'll recall that we have gotten all sorts of excuses. From team Biden in recent months about the disaster over which they are presiding. At first, they said it was seasonal in the spring. It would get better in the heat of the summer. And then it didn't. It got worse. Then they talked about root causes and how this really boiled down to struggles and hardship in a handful of Central American countries, and we just had to do better diplomacy and give them more foreign aid and help them improve the situation on the ground there so that their people didn't feel compelled to leave and come here. That was always, I would say, a quixotic adventure. I'm in favor of some smart diplomacy and some foreign aid, but the idea that we're going to fix the situation in a bunch of other countries... To the extent that people won't want to come to the United States, that's just not realistic at all. And so far, the root causes diplomacy, spearheaded by the vice president, it's gone nowhere. In fact, they went down that path just a bit with one of the Northern Triangle countries and already because of corruption and disagreements, they have reversed course. So that was never a serious option. Also because, and this needs to be said as well, a large percentage Of these hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants arriving at the southern border, not counting tens of thousands of gotaways every month, a large percentage of them don't come from Mexico or those Central American countries. Border agents and U.S. officials have encountered people trying to illegally cross into the United States at our southern border from more than 100 countries, well over 100 countries during this crisis, only one of which, for example, is Haiti. That's been a focal point recently for the obvious reasons, but I think it underscores how completely silly and unserious these excuses and so-called solutions are. Seasonality, debunked. Root causes, debunked. The actual root cause is what the Biden administration is doing, what their policies are, what their posture is, and the message that they have been sending to the entire world. A message that has been received loud and clear by hundreds of thousands of people. We played the clip the other day from NBC News quoting U.S. border officials worried that October might see upwards of 400,000 border encounters, which would be roughly double already historic highs from over the summer, July and August. It's just sort of unfathomable. These statistics, the numbers that are now being projected with the problem getting worse. And while you've got the administration either insulting our intelligence or lying, oh, the border's closed, the border's secure, our hands are tied, we're doing the best we can. It's Trump's fault. It's other people's fault. Seasonality, root causes, we have yet again the illegal immigrants themselves telling the truth openly, which undercuts and really totally delegitimizes the spin that the administration is trying to spoon feed the American people. Obviously, it's not working because the president's approval rating, especially on immigration, is extremely weak. Because what they're telling us does not align with reality. Oh, these are just people seeking asylum and refugee status. And they're escaping extreme persecution and bodily harm in their home countries. Well, in this case with these Haitians, we know that's not true because they've already escaped to other countries and been given refugee status in those countries like Chile and Brazil. Mexican officials said, nope, they're not interested in getting asylum here. They are interested in coming to the United States, passing through Mexico to the U.S. because they want to live here. And as I say, whenever we talk about this, I don't blame them. All right, if I were from another country, especially Under difficult circumstances or if I were impoverished, of course I would want to live in the land of the free, the home of the brave, the beacon of freedom around the world, the biggest economy in the world. Naturally, I would want to move here, but we have laws and we have sovereignty and a desire to be here is not enough because then we don't have a sovereign country. And if we prioritize illegal immigration, if we allow it, indulge it, encourage it. Then our laws mean nothing. It makes a mockery of the entire system. And as we also talk about, it's a slap in the face of the many people who go through an onerous process to get here legally. So there's a piece in The Washington Post this week that once again underscores the reality. Remember when the border crisis really started heating up early in the Biden administration? The media actually covered it for about a week or two. They went down to the border. They had people down there. They had reporters and cameras, and they were documenting this huge influx. And people, remember the immigrants, were chanting Joe Biden's name. Some of them were were wearing Biden T-shirts on their way across the border. And they went up to some of these illegal immigrants who had arrived in America with cameras, microphones, interpreters. Why are you here? Why did you come? And they said, well, because we can stay. Biden will let us in. Would you have done this under Trump? Oh, no. Right. We saw multiple interviews that went that way. Now, of course, there was a border crisis under Trump. They got their arms around it in the Trump administration through a series of successful policies, almost all of which the Biden folks came in and threw in the garbage can idiotically. Which has fueled the most significant and problematic border crisis in decades in this country that continues to metastasize with the problems getting exacerbated and deepening. So just as we saw those immigrants just telling the truth, blowing up the talking points back then, that is the case as well with this latest round of the Haitian nationals. Let me read to you from the Washington Post quote interviews with nearly three dozen Haitian migrants in Texas and Mexico indicated that virtually all of them expected to be granted entry to the United States rumors and incomplete information about asylum and relief spurred at least in part by the administration's inconsistent application of border policies reached them through messaging apps, social media, and phone calls. The deportations that have happened to a few of them recently come after months in which the policy was unevenly applied. From January to August, as the number of migrants crossing the border climbed, the percentage ejected under Title 42, which is this pandemic mechanism that the Trump administration was using, fell during that time period from 82% to 45%. For Haitians specifically, the drop was steeper, 55% expelled to just 8%. By July, a majority of migrants were being processed under Title 8, which allows them to request asylum. Although migrants processed under Title 8, may also face expedited deportation. Most families with children were being released into the United States. The numbers suggest the improving success rate for entering the United States, this is again among illegal immigrants, might have encouraged more migration. And my only quibble here is with the word might. Of course it did. When deportations fall... And we mentioned just a few days ago that DHS has put out a new memo saying, oh, we're going to deprioritize even more deportations, including of some migrants who've committed additional crimes, illegal immigrants. We're not going to put them at the front of the list for deportation just because they're eligible to be deported. When that's the policy of the U.S. administration, when deportations, even in the middle of a pandemic, even under the health guidance, are precipitously falling and the chances that you'll be let into the country increase dramatically, people hear about that. They learn the lesson. Word gets back to them because there are folks, many of them, contemplating whether or not to make this journey. And the higher the chances of success, the more likely they are to move forward and say, yeah, let's go for it. And so more people are being allowed into the United States. If you come with a family and kids, it helps your chances, which is just a ticket for using children. Right. And that opens up a whole can of worms in a Pandora's box on human trafficking, coyotes and other bad actors posing as family units. It puts kids at great risk. Because they're seen as sort of a get into America free card which unfortunately too often has proven to be true in recent months. So for the Washington Post to report all this, I think is good for them to say the numbers suggest the improving success rate. It's interesting phrase success rate for entering the United States might have encouraged more migration. It has undeniably it has. Meanwhile, on Fox News Sunday, Jonathan Swan from Axios was talking about that, and he said, of course, part of this also encourages not just people who are in dire need of help or families or children who are struggling. There are others who benefit, including traffickers. Listen to Cut24. This is only getting worse. Some of it is inducement from the Biden administration policies and and traffickers using that to message to people in the region, come on up, come on up. Right. So the only way to solve this is a regional solution. There's obviously got to be enforcement from the U.S. side, but they're going to have to get cooperation from others in the region. I agree with that, but here's the thing. Under the previous president and the previous administration, Team Trump, They did negotiate really effective cooperation from others in the region, like the Mexican government, like the Northern Triangle governments in Central America. There were safe third nation agreements with those three countries. There was the remain in Mexico policy that cut down illegal entries into the United States dramatically in the latter part of the Trump years. As I mentioned, Biden shows up and says, nope, we don't want that anymore. And they undid it. They reversed the policy and look at where that's gotten us. The Supreme Court said the way they trashed the policy. In fact. Was unlawful. So that was an opportunity for the Biden people to blame the Supreme Court, but put it back into place because they know, of course, the results spoke for themselves. The results were working on remain in Mexico instead The Biden administration has announced that they're going to fight even further in court to keep Remain in Mexico off the books, no longer implemented. And the issue continues unabated. The border crisis does. I follow our colleague Bill Malugin from Fox News, who reports so often from the border. And it's just a string of videos that he seems to post every day. Huge amounts of illegal immigrants Crossing into the United States, just a parade of illegal immigration constantly. And the Biden people are directly responsible for it. And the people who are trying to at least stem the tide a little bit, Border Patrol and our officials down there. I cannot imagine how demoralized they have to be with so little support and in fact being wrongly smeared and demonized the way that they were just what last week. By the media, by the White House, by the vice president and by the president as well. They are causing the crisis. They are prolonging the crisis. They are intensifying the crisis. And the people whose job it is to try to deal with it are being slimed based on lies. It is such a disgrace. And by the way, why is the White House so stubborn? Why are they sticking to this? There are some people who believe that they are perfectly okay with, in fact, enthusiastic about illegal immigration. They want as many people in the country as possible. And then they want to pass an amnesty down the road and make as many of them Democratic voters as possible. I think there's probably some truth to that, especially among some of the hardcore activists. I think part of it is fear. The Biden team is afraid of their left wing and their left flank, and they are governing that way. It's like they're governing based on leftist Twitter, progressive Twitter. And to give you a sense of how detached from reality that crowd is, one of their heroes, this lawyer called Harold Coe, who is in the State Department, a Biden appointee, he has made a big splash this week resigning from his post at the State Department. Why? He's saying that the Biden team is too tough on illegal immigration and that the deportations and repatriations that they are carrying out is Just it's an inhumane policy and they're going too far. That is what the hard left believes. They look at the border crisis and they say, more, please. Let's get more of these people into the country. Let's enforce fewer of our laws. Let's deport fewer people, even if they commit additional crimes as illegal immigrants. That is the pressure from the left. Then there's the governing pressure from the right and the center from most Americans who are disgusted by what they're seeing. And the Biden people are stuck in the middle and they are often siding with the left, which is a recurring theme of the Biden presidency. Mr. Unity, Mr. Moderate, Mr. Norms is governing sort of like an Elizabeth Warren, which is not how he won the nomination or the presidency, but it's how he is acting as president. And that's yet another reason why the upcoming 22 elections and Of course, the 21 elections in Virginia in particular, but especially next year, the midterms are crucial. You have a very liberal progressive Congress with a very influential progressive left to whom the president of the United States is beholden and pandering all the time. And the way to stop it is to elect Republicans. That's it. And those are the stakes ahead of 2022. And we'll be reminding you of those stakes a lot between now and then. It's the Guy Benson Show.
2: You're listening to Guy Benson.
0: Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Now, so this is interesting. Jim Garrity from National Review flagged this. An interview that John Kerry, the climate envoy for President Biden, gave with French interviewers. And our own quiet Wyatt, Wyatt found a video of this exchange. Remember that whole contretemps over France? being very upset about the Australian nuclear submarine deal that I actually support from the Biden administration, but I guess the French were blindsided. They had some interests in the region involving submarines. They were furious. They recalled their ambassador. That was the weekend Biden went to the beach. Well, Kerry told these French interviewers that Biden had no idea what was going on, was not aware of this
3: controversy at all. Cut 21. And uh, President Biden asked me about it, and I told him and expressed. Uh, you told Joe Biden that it was not the right. He asked me, he said, what's the situation? And I explained exactly uh, he, was, he had not been aware of that. He lit- literally had not been aware of what had transpired. And I don't want to go into the details of it, but suffice it to say that, uh, that the president, uh, uh, my president, is very committed to... Um, Uh, strengthening the relationship and making sure that this is a small event of the past and moving on to the much more important future.
0: He literally had not been aware of what had transpired, and I don't want to get into the details of it, is what Kerry said. I assume he's not talking about the nuclear submarine deal in its entirety. Maybe the fact that the French were furious. He didn't get that memo on his way out of town back to the beach. So John Kerry had to tell him, oh yeah, one of our biggest and our oldest ally they're really mad with us for these reasons and he literally the president had no idea that that was going on according to john Kerry. i would love to hear a few follow-up questions on that because it's a little ambiguous but biden being out of the loop and sort of clueless on something with details now hazy that doesn't sound like joe biden does it final hour of the guy benson show coming up don't go anywhere It's the Tuesday Happy Hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. It's our final hour of the program. If you missed anything so far, we've got a podcast. It's free, on demand, every day. GuyBensonShow.com for that and so much more. And The Happy Hour sponsored by our friends at The Finish Long Drink. It's so good. Please check it out. Let me know what you think. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're sold near you. You can order online. I strongly recommend it only if you're 21 plus, of course. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. I'm very happy to welcome back to the show ESPN's senior Major League Baseball insider, Jeff Passon. In addition to his columns on ESPN.com, Jeff regularly appears on ESPN SportsCenter Center and Get Up. I just saw him this week on baseball tonight. He provides updates on all the late breaking news in Major League Baseball. And as we are just hours away now from the postseason beginning in Boston, we are thrilled to welcome back Jeff Passon. Hey Jeff, thanks for making time. I know you're pretty busy these days. Uh, not too busy for you guy. How are you? I'm very well. So here's the thing, a spoiler alert, I think we already know the winners of these wild card games. With the Yankees and the Red Sox, and the Cardinals and the Dodgers, and that would be television executives. I can't imagine they are any happier or could be any happier with these matchups in these wild card games featuring big market teams with massive fan bases.
4: I mean, it's not bad when you start your postseason off with two winner takes all games between uh, some of the most historic franchises in the sport. And. Uh, I'm just hoping that it portends a great October because when you look at the rest of the matchups, they're not bad either. You've got the Henry Aaron Classic between Milwaukee and Atlanta. You've got a really compelling matchup between Chicago White Sox and the Houston Astros. And then the winner of Yankees, Red Sox, is playing the Tampa Bay Rays. And the winners of Dodgers Cardinals are playing the 107-win Giants. So uh, in, in terms of division series, you couldn't do a whole lot better.
0: Yeah, no, it's shaping up very nicely i'm a yankee fan we've talked about this on the air before i think it is asking a lot maybe not too much but a lot for the yankees to go and win yet another consecutive game in boston with so much on the line the red sox have the home cooking they came back stormed back really to beat the nationals to clinch that spot in the wild card what do you make of tonight's matchup
4: well the yankees also have garrett cole on the mound and
0: Well, I understand he hasn't been as sharp lately
4: as he had been earlier in the season. These are the sorts of games that they signed him for $324 million to go out and pitch. (laughs) And there is nobody in that rotation right now that you would rather have out there than Garrett Cole. He's going to be facing a Red Sox lineup that's a little bit diminished with J.D. Martinez, their designated hitter, out uh, after a very baseball injury where he was running out to right field, which... He's played less than 10 games this year at, and on the last day of the season slipped on second base and sprained his ankle. So oops. Um, it's it's Yankees Red Sox though. And with Nathan Eovaldi, who's been the best pitcher for the Red Sox this year on the mound, uh, I, I don't think that this one is going to be a blowout. It just has all the feeling of a nail biter. And, Uh, Listen, like you said, the Red Sox do have the Fenway Park crowd at their back and the Fenway Park dimensions as well.
0: Over, under three and a half hours of the game tonight, because these games always seem like marathons between these teams. I I will
4: very, very easily take the over on that one. If you said four and a half hours, (laughs) I was going to sort of struggle with it, but I appreciate you being generous with your line, guy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I figured... Why not? I was thinking about four hours, which might have been interesting. Okay, let me rephrase yeah. then. Over, under four hours, legitimately? Yeah,
4: still taking the over.
0: <laughs> really? Okay, I would probably take I would take the over three and a half hours, the under four hours. But we shall see. And I think, look, if the pitchers are pitching well, then they're just mowing guys down. It might go more quickly than expected. But if this gets into a slugfest and a battle of the bullpens and guys getting changed constantly new pitchers and just the, the conferences on the mound it just seems for whatever reason that when these teams get together we are in store for many hours of baseball in the meantime looking forward you mentioned the Red Sox injury there are a few other significant injuries heading into this postseason that's always the case but which teams right now do you think are perhaps most concerned about guys who've moved uh, to the IR I think the Dodgers are
4: probably at the head of that list. Within the last week of the season, they lost both Clayton Kershaw to a forearm injury and Max Muncie, their first baseman, to an elbow injury. Kershaw's almost certainly not going to pitch this postseason, uh, and uh, the Dodgers losing Trevor Bauer to administrative leave after a domestic incident and losing Dustin May earlier this year to Tommy John surgery. They're down 60% from their opening day rotation, and yet they feel awfully comfortable still about their starting pitching, having gone out and gotten Max Scherzer at the trade deadline along with Trey Turner and an incredible trade for them, and also having Walker Buehler, who's, maybe been the best postseason pitcher in the last five years, and Julio Arias, who won 20 games this season after closing out the World Series last year. Uh, the, the Monty injury, though, continues the... Uh, affliction on National League West first baseman Brandon Belt from the Giants broke his thumb after getting hit by a pitch, and Muncie trying to feel the errant throw up the line ended up getting his elbow pushed back. He's out the wild card. He's probably out for the division series, and the Dodgers are crossing their fingers that if they're still around by the time the NLCS starts, that Muncie might be back, but uh, they're not altogether confident about that either at this point.
0: You've watched a lot more baseball than I have this season. And I'm going to, therefore, put this into your hands as the expert. For my money, based on limited information and fully admitting to my East Coast bias and watching a lot of AL East baseball, it's hard for me to say that there's a better team in all of Major League Baseball than the Rays. They won, by a pretty decent margin, an unbelievably talented division. This was part of the point that you were making on... TV just the other day, how loaded the AL East is and how the Rays prevailed just through incredible consistency across the board. So in my mind, they're the team to beat overall. I know that the Giants and their win total is extremely impressive. Just from the eye test and everything that you know and all of your observations over the course of 162 games, who is the best team in Major League Baseball entering the postseason? I still
4: think it's the Dodgers, and maybe it's just me being pot committed at this point because I picked them at the beginning of the season to win the World Series again, and because they went out and won 106 games, and because they've got a lineup that's got Mookie Betts and Corey Seager and Justin Turner and Chris Taylor, and you can go on and on. You know, A.J. Pollock... OPSing 900 and hitting seventh for them um they're just so deep and talented but your point about the Rays is a good one and, and and they're a fascinating team guy because they reached the World Series last year and have exactly zero starting pitchers from that rotation back Tyler Glass now uh Tommy John surgery Charlie Morton went to Atlanta and Blake Snell was traded to San Diego that's the, wild uh, the it is, and and it's not only that they have a completely different rotation, it's that Shane McClanahan, rookie, Shane Boz, rookie, Drew Rasmussen, not technically a rookie, but starting for the first time in his major league career and barely not a rookie, and Luis Patino, uh, rookie. Michael Walker could sneak in there as well through five shutout innings on the final day of the season against the Yankees, so depending on the matchup, they could use him, but the, the reality is that the Rays... Have overhauled their pitching staff and still went out and won a hundred games yeah. in a division where you had four ninety-game winners. They don't have superstars, at least to the public. Um, you know Nelson Cruz is there now after the trade deadline. Wander Franco, their twenty-year-old shortstop, is going to be a super duper star, and in my eyes, already is, and I think he's going to be a standout this postseason. But. The the Rays are such an anomalous team because, uh, you know, they're anonymous, and yet here they are having 100 games. And what
0: they've done with that young pitching rotation is the stuff of nightmares. If you're a Yankees fan or a Red Sox fan or a Blue Jays fan looking into the future, and of course if you're an Orioles fan, just, you know, R.I.P. in general, last question As we look forward to the divisional series and beyond, you mentioned some of those matchups are really intriguing beyond the big four and the wild card tonight and tomorrow. I've got a few buddies who are huge White Sox fans. They always feel like there's a chip on their shoulder. They're overlooked in their own city. They're overlooked nationally. Very talented. They had a really good season. Then, of course, you've got the Houston Astros who, and they're – they're matching up. That's a what rematch, if I recall correctly, of the 05 World Series, actually. The Astros, hated by so many fan bases because of some of their controversies and scandals, they are still just getting it done in the AL Central. Just a quick comment on those two teams and their prospects.
4: I appreciate you highlighting this matchup because, to me, it has a chance to be the best one in the Division Series. Two very evenly matched teams. The White Sox offense can be good, has been good since Luis Robert and Aloy Jimenez came off the injured list. But I'll be honest, I have the Astros going to the World Series this year, as praiseworthy as I was of the Tampa Bay Rays, as good as I think they are. To me, the Astros just have a secret sauce that works in the playoffs. They make a lot of contact. Uh, you know, no trash can needed. And I think their pitching is underappreciated and underrated. They have guys who get ground balls and they have a solid infield defense. And uh, I, I was surprised to see this. The Astros, uh, in terms of the, the betting lines, actually are the American League favorite right now, even ahead of the Rays.
0: So, your prediction as we prepare for the wild card games beginning tonight is that when this all shakes out later in the month, it will be the Astros and the Dodgers in the world series. And you've got the Dodgers prevailing. Yes.
4: That is on point. And that prediction guy might be dead by the end of the week. Uh, I mean, it, <laughs> it happens, you know, it might, like it might be dead by Wednesday, honestly, when the Dodgers are hosting the Cardinals, but I, I just feel like they are the two best teams in baseball right now. and, beyond that maybe there's something deep down inside of me that wants to see a rematch from the 2017 World Series and and see the Dodgers exact their revenge.
0: I mean that would be a great storyline amid several storylines that I think would be highly compelling to baseball fans all across the country. Jeff, we'll be watching. If your prediction is correct, we'll have to get you back on to congratulate you publicly. If not, we can perhaps get you back on anyway to troll you. But we so appreciate your time on a very busy day, kicking off a very exciting span of a few weeks for baseball fans. And we appreciate your work at ESPN. Jeff Passon, their senior MLB insider over at the Worldwide Leader. Jeff, thank you. Enjoy the games. Pleasure as always. mine, guy, you do the same. All right, sir. Appreciate it. We will step aside and come right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show.
4: Guy Benson will be
0: right back. We're back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Very pleased to have you here. Joining us now is Susan Lee of the Fox Business Network. And Susan, it has been a turbulent few days for the tech giant Facebook with a 60 Minutes interview featuring a whistleblower who's testifying today on Capitol Hill then a massive outage yesterday the timing is pretty suspicious on some level paint the picture of the headwinds Facebook is facing this week
1: yeah it's been tough you're right and I think we saw that play out yesterday on the stock markets because the stock did have its worst day I think in a year again almost 5% however today despite the fact that you have testimony, on Capitol Hill from this Facebook whistleblower, you know, the stock is back up. And I think there's been a reassessment on Wall Street about how much lasting impacts there might be from this testimony. Now, after that outage, it was, what, six hours long. I think a lot of people were freaking out, not being able to get on Instagram, Facebook or WhatsApp. And that's probably the longest outage we've seen on any of these. Facebook properties or platforms since 2008. Now, it's interesting that we're having this conversation right now because Facebook just came out with the reasons why there was this massive outage, which a lot of people were wondering, is it a cyber attack? I know a lot of people are skeptical like you and cynical, (laughs) thinking, how can this all be happening all at once, right?
0: And what was their explanation?
1: Well, they're saying it was a routine maintenance uh, error. So what happened was that they were huh. trying to assess the availability of the global backbone capacity, you know, how much storage do they have, how much computing capacity. And apparently one of the workers unintentionally took down all the connections in the network. So it disconnected all the data centers collectively, globally. And there was a complete disconnection, they say, between the data centers and the Internet. So it's kind of like a, a domino's effect because when one goes down, you completely sever one. Everything goes down kind of like a blackout.
0: That seems sort of like a pretty significant gap within internal security, right? That's a, a pretty big vulnerability to have one mistake like that trigger potentially a cascade that led to the multi-hour outage yesterday. I'm also still a little bit perplexed by this idea that on a Monday, in between a 60 minutes whistleblower interview and then the whistleblower testifying on Capitol Hill on Tuesday, that Monday... You happen to have this enormous issue occur, impacting Facebook users, I mean billions of people across the world for hours on end, but they are swearing up and down this was not an attack, this was internal.
1: That's right. So, so they said that there was no malicious activity. It wasn't a cyber attack. Now, you know, was there some maybe some uh, errors involved? Absolutely, I would say. Uh, especially for a company of this size, which serves, what, three and a half billion people, which is 60% of the world's connected internet users, right? But, you know, I think also you have to think that, and remember, that Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, what he's trying to do, and this is something that was kind of controversial, I guess, from a company and strategy perspective just about 18 months ago, was that he wanted to connect all three of the platforms. So think of your Facebook Messenger and your Facebook, uh, the blue logo, and also with the WhatsApp and Instagram. Now that doesn't come with, without errors, I think, trying to connect all three of these platforms to interact seamlessly so you can have conversations on Messenger and have seamless conversations on WhatsApp at the same time. So I think that that might have also may have uh, played into this global server outage.
0: Yeah, I, I can also understand why some skeptics are questioning what would be awfully weird and coincidental timing for that to have happened in the context of the other controversies that Facebook is now facing? Susan, briefly, what is the gist of what this whistleblower is alleging, and what reception did she get today on Capitol Hill?
1: Well, she's alleging that Facebook prioritized profits over policy and the, the public good, right? Right. Um, now, did I hear anything that changed my mind, or something that I haven't heard before? No. But I would say that the 10,000 documents that she provided probably were the smoking guns if if Congress needed anything. I mean, we, we know that Instagrams and not just Instagram, but social media in general is bad for body images, especially for the younger users out there. But the fact that Facebook had research that they didn't share it with the public and they hid it for the public and maybe have made some misstatements in public. I think that's probably going to be something that uh, Facebook might or Congress might use, actually, maybe to clamp down on Facebook. Now, what type of policy we might see, I think that's still being discussed and debated. You know, a lot of people in the social media that I spoke to, the executives, don't think there's going to be any lasting policy change. Are they going to retroactively break up Facebook? Unlikely, since those acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp were made eight years ago. Now, are they going to make maybe increase the age of use possible? But again, is that going to have a big impact on Facebook? Probably
0: not. Yep, that remains to be seen. And I think what's key right now is to think critically about what criticisms and areas of scrutiny are legitimate for Facebook and what might be politically motivated and pushing censorship, for example, for ideological or partisan ends. That's the key from my perspective. Susan Lee has been all over this story for Fox Business Network. Susan, thank you.
1: No, thank you so much, Guy. Have a great day.
0: Likewise. And we'll be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Very pleased to have you on board every day. Thank you for listening. Earlier today in the program, we spoke with U.S. Senator Mike Braun of Indiana. He had an exchange earlier this week with the Secretary of Education. That got some attention. He also reacted to the Democrats' massive spending plans and what's happening in the upper chamber. Interesting conversation here with Senator Mike Braun. Here's part of it. So the president is saying now that These trillions of dollars in proposed spending would add zero dollars to the deficit. And he said that to oppose these bills is to be, quote, complicit in American decline. I know that you are opposed to both of these bills, especially the reconciliation one, as is every single Republican in Congress. Your reaction to the president saying by voicing that opposition and having grave concerns about the content and substance of these bills – You are complicit in American decline, Senator.
6: So I think to understand where he comes from and members of the party, especially the progressive side, is they believe the federal government guy is a growth business. And they're going to take uh, the advantage of the whole COVID crisis to kind of get where we were in terms of uh, elevating bureaucrats to determine who's an essential business, the $4 trillion that we did spend out of uncertainty, probably way more than we needed to, and then take that as a catalyst to transfer this economy that was working better. I was in it for 37 years, uh, involved in my own business, running it for most of that time we had hit the sweet spot of economic growth and raising wages pre-COVID. And then this comes along, and they then try to use it to transform the country into a government driven enterprise. And it'd be different if we've knocked anything out of the park in any of the stuff we've tried over decades. And this has really happened under Republican and Democratic stewardship from the Gulf Wars through the Obama years where government really Became cachet, and now here it 's playing out in a doubling down motion of taking six point five trillion on top of the twenty eight trillion uh, roughly that we have eighteen trillion when I got here in two thousand and nineteen january it 's almost hard to imagine, and to put it in comparison the $800 to the eight hundred to nine hundred billion we spent to get through eight nine This is their political entrepreneurship in an attempt to change the country, and it's going to do the opposite of what they intend, and hopefully the American public is not going to buy a sales job to replace what was working with more federal government.
0: Well, he says it costs nothing, right? This is their line, zero dollars.
6: The fact that they're proposing tax uh, revenue that they know two-thirds of the proposals including probably stepped up basis and uh, state tax exemption levels changing that not all Democrats would be for that so there'll be some revenue generated but it'll be mostly shouldered by borrowed money like almost everything has over the last decades Republicans and Democrats on the dance floor but this is beyond the pale in terms of how much you're putting out there on top of all that debt we've accumulated with bad policies so hopefully this gives us the opportunity to get the reins back and 2022 to at least put a stop to it and then build the case for 2024 and then what do we do with it do we undo some of the craziness do we actually start believing in budgets when we're in control do we take things back to regular order or do we then get back into that unholy alliance that got us here mostly in the first place
0: We will get back to the dead in a moment. First, though, I want to play some sound. This was an exchange that you had a few days ago with the education secretary, Miguel uh, uh, Cardona, excuse me. and you asked him a question about parents and schools and the education of children. And it was sort of piggybacking off of something that had happened in the Virginia gubernatorial race where the Democrat running in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, said that he doesn't think that parents – should determine what's taught to their children in schools. The Republicans are really making hay out of that sort of Kinsley and gaff as they call it in politics. You put a question to the Biden administration Secretary of Education asking about a similar issue in Cut twenty-three. Here's part of the exchange. Listen.
6: Do you think parents should be in charge of their child's education as the primary stakeholder? I believe
0: parents are important stakeholders, but I also believe Primary. educators have a role in de- determining uh, educational programming. My full discussion with U.S. Senator Mike Braun of Indiana, available online. GuyBensonShow.com as part of our free podcast. Every minute of every show, on demand, for free, every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. There is a viral sensation on Netflix. People are watching it. People are buzzing about it. I have finally dipped my toe in the waters of Squid Game. It is wild. We will talk about it as soon as we come back.
2: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
0: stretch. Here on the Guy Benson Show. We're almost there, but we couldn't let this moment pass without addressing a show that is all the rage on Netflix. And it is growing in terms of buzz and popularity seemingly by the day. I started to hear some rumbles, gosh, days ago, could it have been weeks at this point, about a show that was streaming on Netflix called Squid Game out of South Korea. And there's the option to watch it dubbed with English language voice actors talking over the mouths because the original show is all in Korean. Or you can listen to the original audio with subtitles. So we have mostly been watching the dubbed version, even though I don't love it because the dubbing isn't great. It's always awkward. Some of the voices are very annoying. So I might. Consider watching some of the upcoming episodes in the OG Korean language while reading subtitles. It's just a little bit more work for your brain to process everything, and it is a show that kind of warps your brain a bit. So, of course, I have started watching it, as I just hinted. I wasn't really sure. I'm not always an early adopter of these things, and buzz will grow, and I'll be skeptical I wasn't really aware of what the show was about, so finally I had heard enough chatter about it where I finally asked Adam, because he had watched a single episode. Someone had recommended it to him. So he had watched the first episode, and I said, without any spoilers, can you explain what the show is about? Because all I knew was the title, Squid Game, and then it was from Korea. That's it. And he said it was hard to describe the genre. It wasn't necessarily action or a drama. It definitely wasn't a comedy. It's kind of a mystery. So he read me a very short summary. And he was exactly right, by the way, when he described the vibe of this show as a cross between Black Mirror and The Hunger Games. If you're familiar with either of those franchises, you might like this show if you're a fan of Hunger Games or separately Black Mirror. If you love both Black Mirror and The Hunger Games, I think that Squid Game is definitely for you. Now, the caveat is, and the warning would be, it is exceptionally violent. If you are squeamish about graphic, and I would argue gratuitous violence, then you probably want to take a hard pass on this. Do not let your kids watch the show if they are young. It is disturbing enough for adults. Let me try to summarize quickly what it's about without giving anything too big away. There are people in society in Korea struggling with enormous gambling debts or debts that they have incurred for various reasons. Personal failings, business ventures going under, they owe a lot of money ...to a lot of people, and they're getting desperate. And these people are somehow identified by sort of a mysterious, shady organization... ...that offers them an opportunity to come, participate, and compete in a series of games... ...at an undisclosed location, and have an opportunity to win a huge amount of money. In fact, I believe the grand prize, it is revealed... ...is in the tens of millions of dollars. When they arrive, having signed an agreement to participate, they are given a few rules about how the games go. They sign their consent, and then the games begin, and there's an extremely dark turn that happens almost immediately, and people start to realize... What is happening is extremely dangerous. I will leave it there because I don't want to give too much away. But there are, I think, some fascinating insights into human nature, the human psyche, desperation, greed. What people will do under intense pressure. Alliances that form. And the interpersonal relationships undergirding those alliances under extreme duress, it's interesting. Now, apparently, because there's a Wall Street Journal story about it, that this show, which they're calling the South Korean survival drama, was shopped around for a decade. And studios were just rejecting it because they thought it was too over the top too violent, too grotesque, too unrealistic. But it is now on track to become Netflix's most watched show. Here's part of the Wall Street Journal reporting. South Korea's dystopian drama Squid Game might become Netflix's biggest hit ever. But for a decade, local studios rejected the fictionalized show's pitch as too grotesque and too unrealistic. The premise revolves around financially broke adults... Playing traditional Korean children's games on a secluded island, the losers, well, I don't want to give this spoiler away, but a single winner emerges with a cash prize of about $40 million. Squid Game, which debuted September 17th, so it's only a few weeks old, is now a global phenomenon. TikTok videos of people replicating the games, the children's games, not uh, the games, as they occur in the show, I would imagine, have gone viral. Online retailers rushing to sell Squid Game Halloween costumes, which actually would be a pretty good costume, especially some of the guards or maybe the boss. The boss has a pretty awesome costume, although very creepy. The show has hit number one in more than 90 countries, including the United States, a surprise even to Netflix executives. By every metric, the Korean survival drama is on pace now to surpass Netflix's current record holders, Bridgerton and Lupin, in the total volume of hours watched and the number of subscribers who have tuned into the show for at least two minutes. Quote, it's still trending up. We've never seen anything grow as fast and aggressive as Squid Game, says a Netflix executive. So, look, I'm not sure... I'm recommending this. It will be too much for some people. I have to grimace and avert my eyes occasionally. But the twists and turns and plot, that's all compelling. They have cliffhangers at the end of some of the episodes where you almost cannot help but watch the next one. Like the other night, it was probably 1 o'clock in the morning, and we were done. And then the cliffhanger was so intense— that we looked at each other, we're like, "Well, one more." It's eight or nine total episodes. We are more than halfway through. Again, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but I just want to put it on your radar, producer Christine. I'm not sure if this is your cup of tea. Have you watched any of it? Have you even seen the trailer?
5: I saw the trailer, and I was already scared by watching the trailer. So I will not be watching this. This is uh, this isn't Housewives. Let's just say that this is no Kardashians.
0: It's definitely not, but are you not into that stuff? Have you not watched Hunger Games? Do you get too scared? Yeah, Hunger
5: Games, I got—I I saw the first Hunger Games, and, and I read the books, but uh, no, it scared me. It really did. It's, it's just something—I don't— I,
0: This no. is way more violent. Really? Oh, yeah. What, Hunger what Games at least like has that? some— They have some lighter elements in Hunger Games. There's some comedic relief. There are some, like, clear good guys. I guess they are protagonists in this show, but if you couldn't handle Hunger Games, then stay away from Squid Game is all I'm saying. Dan, our new tech producer and board op, you are sort of tracking with me, right? You've seen more than half of the series?
3: Yes, I've seen about where you are now. And I started watching with my girlfriend, and I'm into this very much and she does not like it, one thing, because the overdubs she hates and can't stand to listen to. And then just the absolute violence of it is just too much for her. But I, I love it, so I've been watching it on my own now.
0: Okay, so she basically pulled the ripcord. She's out, but you've continued.
3: Yeah, she gave me the okay. Watch it when I'm not around, and which is a hard thing to do um, in a relationship. you got to kind of watch at the same time, you know? So she gave me the okay, and I watch it on my own.
0: All right, I think that's completely fair. We are both very much into it. There is gasping. There is yelling occasionally. Adam will cover his eyes at certain points along the way. But, I mean, look, there's a reason why it's trending to be the most popular Netflix show of all time, right? It has a way of hooking you, and it's super compelling. And it's just interesting that for years and years, the people who had written this and were trying to shop the script were having doors slammed in their faces. Nope. It's too much. It's too over the top. It's not going to work. People won't like it. And now it's a global phenomenon hitting number one, as you heard there, in dozens of countries. Wyatt, you have not seen this show. Are you tentatively interested now or is the description turning you off? Yeah, I have to say it's turning me off. But um, And I'm like you. When, when there's hype around certain things, I, I remember Tiger King and the hype around that. And I waited a long time until I watched that. So I don't know. I'm going to. I'm going to wait on this one. Tiger King, I thought, was a little overblown. Like, it was wild, it was crazy, some very colorful characters. I did not really love it, but that was at least somewhat like a real-world documentary. This is complete fiction, thank God. Christine, it sounded like you were exasperated and wanted to add something.
5: Well, see, the thing is, I have curious— Now I'm watching a lot of clips, and I have a lot of questions, but I think my questions might ruin it for people, so I'll just— We'll have to wait a little bit, but now well, I'm kind of intrigued, and I think I do want to watch it.
0: Now, that is an abrupt about face. We got a flip flopper here, producer Christine. We could even call her Flipper, something like that, as a radio producer. That would be novel, never done before. Our very own cookie flip flopping in a matter of seconds on Squid Game. We'll try it out. Watch it with Bobby, maybe a glass of mama's juice in hand, and let us know what you think. I'm just putting it out there on the radar screen for the audience because it is this huge sensation. We're watching it. It is very intriguing, and it is trending worldwide, as is The Guy Benson Show, as we like to say. Thank you for listening every single day. Back here for the Wednesday edition tomorrow. We will see you on special report on the panel coming up with Brett Bayer on Fox News Channel this coming hour. So please tune in for that. In the meantime, have a great night and we'll talk to you same time, same place on the radio 21 hours from now.